This is KMUW Wichita Public Radio. Engage ICT is a community engagement event of KMUW Wichita. The following event took place on March 13th at Roxy's downtown. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming out for Engage ICT, Democracy on Tap. Very glad to see you all with us today. Um, we have a wonderful panel for you uh, to ask questions to tonight, and we will uh, go ahead and dive in and start our discussion. Um, I do want to thank our sponsors before we get started. First of all, to Roxy's Downtown for the venue and the fabulous food. Let's have a round of applause for Roxy's. We really appreciate that partnership, and KMUW depends a lot on partnerships with other organizations in the community, so uh, a big thanks to Roxy's, um, as well as to the Wichita Public Library for providing our further reading resources every month. Thanks to the library. And we have the, the resource guides from all of our former Engage ICT Democracy on Tap events as well. So if you missed a discussion and you're interested in it, for one thing, you can also go to engageict.org and hear past discussions, and in some cases see videos as well. We're doing Facebook Live now as well. Um, but you can also find those, uh, those resources from the past discussions here at our info table. Um, and other than just our own information, we also have some resources from Sedgwick County at our info table too. So be sure to check that out. And there's also swag, all kinds of good stuff. Um, and so let's go ahead and jump in here and uh, we'll let the panel kind of introduce themselves and talk a little bit about uh, kind of how they came to where they are. Scott, let's start with you. Why don't you share a little bit about yourself and uh, your career and what brought you to, to the position that you're in now? Okay, thank you. Uh, good afternoon. My name's Scott Hadley. I've got the privilege of being the director of Sedgwick County EMS. My career began about 30 years ago in 1988 as an emergency medical technician. I joined the reserve program with the department. And from there, hired full time, I worked out on an ambulance for a decade. Uh, after that, subsequently was promoted to field supervisor for another seven years, worked out on the street supporting the folks on the ambulance and then subsequently got promoted as the operations manager over all operations for EMS for five years, I served in that role until becoming the director in 2010, which that's my current role the past eight years. So that's kind of how I evolved and also went back to school. Uh, I'm a registered nurse in the state of Kansas as well as being a paramedic and also have my master's degree in business administration through Friends University. And Scott, are there any uh, memorable moments or, or experiences that you had on, on a truck or uh, in the field? Sure, a couple of those. Uh, the uh, April 26, 1991 tornado that hit South Wichita and Andover, obviously was very memorable for me, being on the ambulance, responding to South Wichita and subsequently to Andover to care for patients there during that event. Also the June 8, 1998 uh, DeBruce grain elevator explosion, I was on duty that day, stationed in Derby, responded to that event and uh, May 4th, 1999, and the Hayesville tornado as well, are some of the ones that I responded to as I worked out in the street. Thank you. Let's have a, a round of applause to welcome Scott Hadley tonight. <laughs> Next in line, we have Elora Forshi. Uh, Elora, why don't you tell us a little bit about your career and what uh, brought you here tonight, too? Sure. 
My name is Elora Porsche. I'm the director of Sedgwick County 911. Um, I started 14 years ago as a dispatcher, and I'd like to tell people that I started for this deep love of community, but really I started because I was nosy and I wanted to know what was happening in our community. And so, uh, but through that job, I have developed a deep love of our community and an investment in the safety of our community. I have worked as a dispatcher, I've worked as a supervisor, I've been over support services, which is quality assurance and training within our department. I was the deputy director over operations and now uh, in the director role for about two years. Uh, in addition to 911 dispatchers, I'm also in charge of the radio shop, which maintains the public safety radio system throughout Sedgwick County that all of your first responders utilize out in the field to talk to and from dispatch. Um, I'm from Wichita. I just have a deep ingrained love of our community. My parents uh, are very invested in the community and that's something that we came up with through our family. Uh, I'm married to a man who's in law enforcement and so between the two of us we feel like we are very, uh, like I said, public safety focused, public safety minded and I love serving as your 911 director. It's one of the greatest passions of my life. Thank you. And have you had um, any experiences that have kind of paid off that nosiness you're thinking okay I get it now this is what our community is like or well I know too much about some of you um, no I think that you know like I said it started out as nosiness but I can think of so many events that we've been involved in that for good or bad that we have been that voice for people when they need help whether it be officers out in the field or paramedics or firefighters or people who their life has just gotten to a point where they can't manage it on their own. Maybe their spouse is deceased, a uh, baby not breathing, things like that. To, to have that entrustment from our community in us to take care of those is a huge responsibility and not something we take lightly. So while it started as that, and I like to joke about that, it's a very serious profession and one that I'm very proud to be a part of. Let's welcome you, Laura, to the, fam to the panel. The family. <laughs> the family panel. Next up, we have Chief Snow. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to the position that you're in and your experience? Well, good evening. Um, I am Chief Tammy Snow, and just to kind of give you a little bit of my background, I actually started out as a school teacher and taught here at uh, in Wichita at North High School. Um, right after uh, my student teaching, I got a position at North High School, taught mathematics there. Um, was there for about eight years. Um, and uh, through my eight years, you know, um, as your school teacher, if you want to progress up the ladder, you need to have a master's degree. So every summer I would go back to school and um, obtain some graduate hours so that I could get my master's degree. Well, I finished that in 1987. Um, and uh, then the following, or, or during that summer of 1987, had a friend on the fire department, and they happened to be given a physical agility test. And at that point, very few females had ever passed the test. And so he kind of bribed me. I'm pretty competitive. So he kind of bribed me and said, hey, why don't you come out and see if you can pass the test? Um, and so I did. And with no intentions of ever being a firefighter, just to, it was just competition. It was just something to see if I could do. And so um, I did pass the test, went back and taught then the following year. Um, and then I got a phone call. And it was a point in my teaching career in which I was getting a little bored. And so I thought, well, um, maybe I'll uh, go be a firefighter for a little while, and then I can always go back, keep my teaching certificate, and go back and be a teacher. Well, in 1988, then I accepted the position, and I got so much gratification out of being a firefighter that I uh, truly fell in love with it. So here I am 30 years later. Um, started out as um, uh, 
well, of course, like I just told you, I'm pretty competitive. So one of the things that um, when I first got on the department, one of the things that was told to me is that no female ever stayed over four years. So goal number one, I'm going to stay over four years. Um, then I was told, hey, um, no females ever went through operations and become went through the ranks. And our ranks are firefighter, lieutenant, captain, um, battalion chief. At one point in time, we had a division chief's position deputy chiefs, and then the chief. And so uh, there had been a female, and she had been a captain, but she had went through training. And so goal number two, I'm going to stay longer than four years, and I'm going through the ranks. And so uh, that's what I've done. I've served in every position through operations. And uh, now in November of, uh, this, of 2017, I was named the fire chief. So that's kind of the short and skinny of how I ended up here. Um, uh, in regards to um, serving the community, but truly love, you know, I love teaching, I love coaching. So throughout my career um, as a firefighter, you know, we work 24 hours and then we're all 48. So I was able to continue to coach youth. So spent a lot of time with um, AAU, it's an or a youth organization, um, currently serve and have been serving since 1990 on their executive board um, throughout the nation. Uh, they're tied into the NCAA, so uh, this is, you know, the NCAA tournament being here is, is uh, dear to my heart. So, Thank you. Let's welcome Tammy. Our last panelist tonight is Ken Cook. He is the meteorologist in charge of the National Weather Service here in Wichita. Ken, uh, why don't you tell us about your, your history and what brought you to the position that you're in as well? Right, Sorry, I led you astray. I told you, it's on. Don't touch it. Don't worry about it. Don't That's think right. about it. <laughs> That's all right. Sorry. <laughs> so I grew up in South Florida, um, and I really liked weather as a kid, and so I pursued that um, at a really young age. I really liked that. And I graduated from Florida State in 1992, and uh, I've worked in six duty locations in, uh, ranging from Florida, North Carolina, Washington, D.C., and then I was in Wisconsin for seven years, and I've been here in Wichita since 2005. Uh, I came here to Wichita to be the lead scientist and operations person there at the National Weather Service. And last year, I was promoted to the meteorologist in charge. And I, I think I can speak for most meteorologists that we really have a passion, not just for the weather, but for protecting people and, um, and educating people on what to do with uh, when weather is um, threatening you and, and how to stay safe. And I think we all have that passion, and, and that's, I have that same passion. So. Excellent. Welcome, Ken. Now, as we get going tonight, if you have uh, questions that you can think of for the panel, go ahead and fill out one of the slips that uh, are on the tables there in front of you and hand them to Alexis, and she will uh, collect them for you. Um, you know, emergency medical services, 911 operations, fire, uh, emergency weather situations, uh, if you're in danger, these are some of the first people that you turn to. So we're, we're kind of collected all, all corners there uh, of, of that sort of situation. So we'll, we'll go ahead and, 
and talk about it now. So um, what I'd like to start with is, Scott, if you can describe maybe the primary function of EMS and other unintended functions that have sort of developed over time um, to kind of describe what, what it is you do and the reach of EMS. Certainly. Um, obviously, the main focus and our primary goal is, 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 is a public safety net. If someone experiences a sudden illness or a sudden injury, uh, we're there for them. Uh, we were formally established in 1975 as a county-owned and operated system. So for the past 43 years, we've been providing that public safety net, if you will, to our community. And we're very passionate about that. And we work alongside our emergency communications partners, the Wichita Fire Department, Sedgwick County Fire Department, and other first responders to be able to provide that level of care. And so the first and foremost, if you have an emergency situation, that's our first and foremost goal is to get to you and provide the level of care that you need at that given time and get you to the right destination to take care of that. And a lot of times that is the a trauma center sometimes, sometimes it's a specialty hospital or whatever your emergency is, we try to get you to that location. We, we work very, very closely with the medical community. The Medical Society of Sedgwick County oversees and provides our protocols that we operate under. And they're very engaged with the medical physicians and other healthcare professionals in our community. So we make sure that we have the most contemporary protocols and that we're taking folks to where they can get the most optimal care. So. We work very closely with them. Uh, our protocols are fairly rigid, and they're ever-changing. They're very dynamic. And I think over the years, as EMS and emergency services have evolved, obviously people call. We, we've, we've advertised that. We have tell people if there's an emergency, call 911. And that has evolved to sometimes people overusing the 911 system. We all see that in a variety of ways, calling for a variety of things. And as we have looked at this data over the years, we know, now know not every emergency is the same. We don't run red lights and siren to every emergency now. It's safer for the public, it's safer for us, and we still can deliver care that the patient needs at the time. There are other times the patient doesn't really need us. They don't need EMS, they don't need transported in an emergency department, they need other types of care. So now we're at a stage in EMS where there are other programs out there that other EMS agencies have implemented to address folks that need mental health care, that need social services and other needs that our citizens have to get them better aligned with the resources that best fit their needs. So we're on the cusp, we're changing how we respond and we can help folks navigate the really convoluted healthcare system to hopefully get them to the right level of resource at the right time. Elora, can you talk a little bit about that, the, the overuse of, of, I mean, this is driven by 911 and the calls that come in through that, correct? So, right. yeah, go ahead and talk about that a little bit. So prior to, well, back in the 70s, we had separate uh, seven-digit numbers or 10-digit numbers, if you had the area code, that you called for emergency services. So if you needed police, you would call the police department fire, you call the fire station. And so then in 1980, locally in Sedgwick County, we implemented the 911 system. And so to pump that message out, it was call 911 for everything. And so that worked really well for several decades. And then everybody got cell phones. And so where if I saw something out on the street, I had to go home to my landline phone that was hanging on the wall by the fridge to call 911. That's no longer the case. And so 
the traffic accident that happens on Kellogg, for example, now has how many passerbys that are going by it that are all calling on their cell phones. And so there's this inundation and saturation sometimes of the 911 system. So while it's appropriate to call about that accident, we also have this, again, thought of call 911 anytime anything gets beyond my scope of what I know how to handle, I can call 911 and I can ask a question such as what's the phone number to the jail or what's the, uh, when will my electricity be back on? We get calls such as that. Um, we still every once in a while get calls about animals and trees um, that they need the fire department help for a cat in a tree. And so it is really about teaching our community to look at other resources that they can use to find, uh, to engage in some problem solving abilities and look for other more appropriate resources when it's not an emergency situation. And because we have so many cell phones and that pervasive use of cell phones out there, you really have to be cognizant about when you're calling, why you're calling, do you need to call right then? And then in addition to that, we have a whole other host of issues that come with cell phones, uh, with cell phone misdials, which is about 20% of our calls right oh now. Yes, yeah, so one in five calls that we take right now in the 911 center is a cell phone misdial, and so that person, that 911 dispatcher or call taker that's on that line is unavailable to answer a true emergency call because they're trying to ferret out whether or not a 911 misdial is an emergency or not. And so there's several issues that make up the inundation of 911. I just want to follow up on that a little bit. What, first of all, do you do if your cat's in a tree? And do and so another type of emergency maybe mm -hmm. that people call about is if they see a wreck on the highway, is that one that you should be calling 911 for? So cats and wrecks, what do, what do we do with those? Well, I like to point out to people that you've never seen a dead cat in a tree. And so <laughs> I would always just trust that that cat's going to find his way down. Um, but yeah, for accidents, you know, definitely we want you to call 911 in those situations. But use some situational awareness and look around. You know, do you see a fire truck coming down the street? Is this an accident that's happened you know, quite a while ago and you're coming up on the corner of Kellogg and Rock at this accident, you can see that it happened, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes ago, chances are that somebody's already called that in. And so while I would never tell you not to call because it's better to call and be safe than sorry, I would ask that you use some common sense and, you know, think about whether that call is appropriate. If you see that everybody else is sitting there on their phones pointing at the accident, chances are they're calling about it. Or if the people that are there at the accident scene are on their phones, Chances are they've called about it. So things like that that I ask people just to be aware of and think about. Um, again, that resource, that 911 system is a precious, precious resource. And people don't think about the use and protection of that resource until they need it. And hopefully you don't ever need it. Some people never call 911. But when you need it, if you need it, you want to get through. You want to get through quickly and you don't want to be blocked by somebody that's calling for something that they A, either don't need to call about or B, because they've pocket dialed. So, uh, Chief Snow, I, it's kind of, I don't know if this is totally accurate, but it seems like the fire department often shows up first to emergency situations. How are they so fast? What, what is it that makes them get there first? Uh, repetitive training. Someone said coffee. <laughs> well, that's what did true you say? Too. <laughs> no. Um, we have, uh, you know, we, we make a lot of decisions based on data, and um, the fire stations are strategically located throughout the city um, with an emphasis that uh, we try to meet performance measures of uh, to arrive at any incident uh, within four minutes. 
Now, um, as far as performance measures, um, we're allotted between four and eight minutes. And um, so we can respond to um, a little over 90% of our calls within four minutes um, out of the 22 fire stations that we currently have. And then the guys do practice. When I say they do have repetitive training, yeah, the, it's called bunk out school and uh, they'll, they'll work on, you know, uh, pretending there's an alarm coming in and how fast they can get dressed. Okay. Um, Ken, I have an audience question here. Has emergency services training changed? Oh, I'm sorry. That was a different one. Another one just popped in here. Uh, oh, has that training changed at all due to global warming and climate change? Emergency services, like for us? Yes. And then, I mean, other, other panelists may want to weigh in on this as well. What we do really hasn't changed. Um, I've been in that outfit for 25 years, and... Um, you know, part of that was temporary, so I did start in 1991. Uh, a lot of what we do on our level isn't really affected by those things per se. I mean, there's some forecasting issues that I can get into if people desire that, but, um, but by and large, you know, our job there is to try to communicate with these folks what the threats of the weather is gonna be like. We work with emergency management. We try to give them a heads up as to what to expect for a given weather situation over the next, um, you know, over the next week is what we basically forecast for is the next week. And try to give them the best weather information we can uh, for timing, the level of the threat, this type of thing. Um, so over the years, uh, really that has, has gotten better because of better modeling and some of the other things that we do. But um, as far as uh, global warming or, or any kind of climate change issues, um, we really haven't done a lot with that at that level because we're dealing with that. So. Can you talk a little bit about predictive modeling and kind of how that has changed the game and what it means as well? Sure. Uh, modeling over the last 25 years has really changed. When I came into this agency, um, our computer system was built by Ford Motor Company. Um, you know, you have more power in your wristwatch probably than what we have in the whole computer system. And, uh, you know, we got one model run twice a day. Um, and the amount of information we would get on that was very small, and we would get that at 12-hour at time step. So, like, say, if a, if a model ran at 6 p.m. this evening, we would see um, what the model would predict at midnight, then again at 6, or, uh, 6 a.m., and so on. Um, today, uh, we have uh, about 100 or so models, plus or minus. Some of them go all the way down to the storm scale because we have a lot more computer power to be able to deal with that and we're getting some of that information um, as fast as every 15 minutes. So um, the way we can serve these folks better and just the community at large is that we have a, a number of models now that deal with, um, uh, uh, like, well, I wouldn't say storm scale, but we're able to model uh, thunderstorms, if you will. And so what that does is we can say, all right, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. We're getting these hourly model runs. It looks like thunderstorms are going to develop over Hutchinson and move down uh, uh, or up northeast towards Salina. It looks like they're going to be um, supercell thunderstorms or maybe it's going to be a big squall line. And because of that, we're able to have a better uh, predictive feel in our operations so we have better situational awareness. We can also give our emergency management and our law enforcement and these partners um, better information as to how to prepare for that. So that's really how things have changed over the years. I think the predictive element of that has really uh, given us a foot forward to be able to give uh, you all and the people that we serve 
uh, more lead time when, in hazardous weather is, is, is coming in, and also to provide these folks with better information ahead of time so they can better ramp up their staffs, better plan for what time uh, the storms are going to hit certain communities and have a better um, a plan of action, if you will. Tammy, did you want to weigh in on the emergency services? Sure. Um, Kent's agency does provide us with some very valuable information, and it does provide us an opportunity to partner up with 911, EMS, and uh, do a lot of uh, pre-planning and uh, put together, a, and it's called an incident accident plan, or an incident action plan. And um, what it is is basically pre-plan. Uh, how are you going to handle this situation depending on what the disaster is? And um, provides us an opportunity to increase staffing, come up with a game plan prior to actually just, uh, it allows us to be proactive rather than reactive. And uh, we modify uh, certain response guidelines, uh, some, some minutes, depending on the staffing, depending on what it is, you know, we adjust our staffing accordingly. So extremely important, the information that he provides to emergency services. If I may add to that, we also work with the media and there are other private weather companies. So it's a big weather, weather enterprise that, that we all get together to try to, I guess, give you the best plan of action to keep people as safe as they can and so we can all march together. We do that quite a bit with media and partners and, and those types of things. And you know, when severe weather's going on, we always have a chat open with just those exclusive people to where we can talk to them and exchange storm reports and information. So, you know, we're the ones doing the warnings. They're, you know, uh, the TV stations and them, they're the ones telling you what's happening. And they're really the, the boots on the ground, if you will, as far as informing people what's going on. We're f informing them, but the public at large, what these folks in the room might see, would see that. And so we're all working together behind the scenes as things are unfolding to try to give the best information. Ken, can you also talk about how funding for weather satellites has changed? Yeah, I can. Um, so <laughs> it's changed a lot. Um, you know, like I say, a lot has changed over the years. Um, and now, in the last couple of years, we've just launched these two new satellites that are giving us just incredible amount of data. Um, and so, uh, a number of years ago, I was—I want to say—and I—I I don't know how exact this is, but it, it's over a decade ago. They—they—they they, they embarked on these projects of trying to give us better uh, weather satellite information. And so, we sent one up in the end of. Uh, I think 2016, and then we just did one here a few weeks ago, uh, which is going to, um, the, the one that we just launched is going to be over the western part of the country, and the earlier one is now over the eastern uh, part, and you know, some of you may know this, but they're often re referred to as goes east and goes west, and that's kind of the jargon that we use. But the resolution and the amount of, of information that we get to those from those satellites is incredible, and I'll give you just some examples. Um, Right now, the way we're looking at this information, before this latest satellite, we could get, um, if we put it in a rapid scan mode, we can get a picture every five minutes. But if we didn't have it in the rapid scan mode and we, we couldn't operate with that often because it would wear the satellite out, if you will, we would get information at, at the level that we need it for our area here in Kansas every 15 minutes. With our new satellite, it's a minimum of every five minutes. And if we're in a rapid scan window, 
um, it's every minute. And in fact, we can put the, the so there's two rapid scan windows on both on both on each satellite, so we could actually overlay them and get a new picture of what's going on every 30 seconds. And so, what does that mean for you? It means we can really, it's giving us a lot better of predictive element in the, like with storms evolving and how that's going. And so, um, that means more lead time for warnings. It's also allowing us to do new things. Uh, one thing we just started out with working with the, the emergency management is uh, these hotspot notifications. And what that is, is um, we can actually identify fires on the satellite. And so what we're then able to do is we're, we have a little um, app in our, on our computer at the office. And so what we do is we um, basically send a text with a lat lawn and a small forecast and observation to these folks so that they can then dispatch um, fire crews. And we're, some of those actually have been beating the 911 calls. So our goal is to try to, again, give these folks the best information as fast as we can so that they can in this case, uh, address these fire situations. That's amazing. What kind of technology, is there something coming down the pike or, or, or maybe just a technology that you all wish you had that would be very helpful? Maybe in collaboration or? or <coughs> oh, what do I wish I had? Well, everything that you see on TV and like CSI is what I wish I had. Uh, we are actually on the precipice of a lot of change in 911 with technology, with uh, what they call next generation 911. And so we unveiled in October text to 911, which was a big step forward in the 911 industry, allowing people to text in when they can't call. The motto is call when you can, text when you can't. Of course, we think about those situations like school shootings, um, you know, those types of calls where, you know, it's that rapid exchange of information. I can't talk, I'm hiding in a room, I don't want to call, but I need to let somebody know I need help. And so, um, while think, thankfully we're not getting those texts yet, we're getting ones that most likely should have been phone calls, um, but that technology is there and available. Also for our deaf and hard of hearing community, that's a great asset for them to be able to control that conversation and not have to go through a relay service. Uh, so on, we've unlaunched or we've unveiled that, and then on the heels of that, we'll start to come in uh, picture and video into 911, and it's not happening yet, so don't send us any pictures yet, please. Uh, but that's what the next step is for technology and 911 services. And so, as an industry, we have to decide what we do with that, and what who views it, and uh, what does that mean when they view it, and how does that get disseminated or pushed out to field personnel, and there's a whole host of other questions and um, responsibilities that come with that capturing of that media that comes in. And so there are just all this technology that we have emerging out in telecommunications is now filtering into the 911 center and it's going to start changing the shape of what your 911 system looks like. And if you can also address this, and Scott, maybe you want to weigh in on this one too. What has been your experience working with public schools? Are there educational programs for kids where it comes to safety and response to inclement situations? So we go out to first grade classes is what we target uh, at 911. That seems to be the age where they really start learning about their phone number and their address. And we talk to them about the importance of knowing your phone number and your address and especially talk to them about making sure they know how to use the cell phones that are in their homes because most homes have gone exclusively to cellular communication or wireless communication rather than landline phones and they work a little bit differently and every phone works differently and 
Um, so we talk about that and we also discuss that in the sense of if you know how to work mom and dad's phone, that's great, but if mom and dad leave and now babysitter's there and something happens to babysitter, do you know how to use babysitter's phone? And if they have a lock code on the phone, how do they get past the lock code and things like that? So those are all things that we talk about at the first grade level and we send all kinds of information home in hopes that they will share it with their uh, parents so that they can have that conversation. But really, just putting your address and your phone number on your fridge, um, as basic as that sounds. I think that when we were a kid, we had the little phone-shaped magnet that did that. Um, so those are the things that we talk about with first grade classes, and um, they have some wild stories about things that they should call 911 about. It's pretty entertaining. Scott? Sure, we go out and we interact. There's a lot of requests that come in for public relations events at, at our schools in, in Wichita and Sedgwick County. Uh, one of the ones we partner with is Safe Kids. We go out and uh, engage youngsters. They, a lot of folks ride bikes to schools when the weather's good, so we teach them bicycle safety, helmet giveaways with Safe Kids and that type of thing. So we can ensure people get to meet us and greet us and and not scared when we actually have to show up and, and interact with them on a, on a real scene. So that's very helpful as well. So we do a lot of those types of events throughout the year uh, with a variety from the elementary school coming up through high school. Scott, can you also talk a little bit about the opioid crisis and uh, if there's an uptick happening in Wichita or just kind of what you're seeing with that and the role that EMS is playing when responding to those sorts of calls, drug-related calls? Yeah, the opioid crisis is real. It's, it's hitting a lot of places throughout the country in different communities. We haven't seen a real big uptick here yet, and I, and I stress yet, because I think it will eventually come to Wichita. And the reason I say that is the, the number of overdoses that are opioid-related, the medication that we give to reverse that uh, opioid overdose hasn't really gone up in how much we administer from month to month over the past couple of years. So right now we're not seeing it as much as folks on the coast and other communities have seen a dramatic increase in opioid type narcotic overdoses in their communities. So it's very easy. Heroin's very cheap. It's easy to get a hold of. There's other synthetic narcotics out there that are very, very potent. It doesn't take a lot to have a dramatic impact on someone. But as far as here yet, uh, why it may have increased slightly, it's not to the level some other communities have. So hopefully we can combat that. We've had some initial meetings with law enforcement. If it does come to our community, what do we do? Are we prepared for that? And so hopefully we can educate our community to identify that and get a handle on it ahead of time before it really hits bad here. Are there any ways to kind of prevent it or are there, are there some measures being taken to keep it at bay? Well, I think that's on the law enforcement side. They're, they're carefully watching those types of things in our community to see if there is a rise and it, is it coming into our community? And if it is, where's it coming from and how do we prevent that? Are there folks around here manufacturing those types of drugs here in, in town and the over-the-counter over abuse of prescription medications is another thing that folks keep an eye on and trying to pass the legislation and laws that make it difficult for people to get that type of medication. Tammy, what kind of uh, situations are firefighters capable of handling beyond, you know, putting out a fire? I want to talk a little bit about training because at least, especially for the first three of you guys, 
Uh, it seems like folks are trained to do a broader variety of things than the public kind of realizes. Um, in regards to firefighters, uh, usually if you dial 911, we're going to be the first ones to respond or we basically roll out the door on most everything, um, unless it's strictly law enforcement type things. Um, and then we usually go with them, but it's in a standoff mode. Um, so we're kind of the jack of all trades. Um, and as far as training, um, we go through extensive training um, when we first hire fire, new, new firefighters in. Um, but um, there's no way that we can actually, you know, um, we're, we're very fortunate, I guess is what I want to say, that uh, when we um, assign personnel together, there's usually uh, people that have certain skill sets or additional skill sets other than what we actually put them through when they uh, go through uh, their basic training, their basic firefighter training. But we also, with that being said, um, we... Um, we dedicate certain specific amount of time every single shift that they work to train on something. Um, it is the supervisor's responsibility to um, identify areas of weakness and um, or areas in which uh, their skill sets aren't as strong for some of the incidents that they would encounter and then for them to train on those or educate their personnel on that. What kinds of skill sets are you are you talking about? Well, uh, it can be anything from basic firefighting to building construction to reading smoke to um, um, floor plans, uh, sprinkler systems, alarm panels. Um, and then we also, because 80%, well, anywhere between 72 to 80%, depending on the year, the year of data that you want to take a look at, um, are medical calls of some sort. And so we spend a significant amount of time um, doing medical type training. Um, we also, you know, do extrication and you talk about the cat up in the tree, you know, and Elora says, no, you probably have never seen a dead cat. And that's true, but there's still people that call 911 and they're still, and sometimes because we, what we're trying to do with our image or what we have for the last few years is, you know, those fire stations are owned by the taxpayers. They are community fire stations. So we'll have people or neighbors that come in and say, hey, can you come help get me, get my ferret out of the window well? You know, so it doesn't even go through 911. And so our guys are trained in, you know, how do you approach a ferret and get it out of the window well, you know. So just, just things like that. Any, I mean, any emergency... Um, any kind of situation in which a person needs help, um, the fire department tries to um, provide that um, skill set to them so that, you know, we meet their needs. And Elora, what are call takers capable of on the phone if there's a medical situation? What are they trained for? Everything. <laughs> uh, really, I mean, we handle anything that comes our way, and so we... Uh, on the medical side, we deliver babies. We perform CPR or give CPR instructions. Uh, we open airways. We clear blocked airways. We uh, we can help you save a limb that's been cut off. We can, golly, we can stop bleeding. Uh, anything that comes up, I and mean, we just handle everything because we need to until the you know crews on the ground get there. And uh, so, if we're not trained on it, which you know, is unlikely, then we're going to find a solution for you somewhere um, because we have some doozies that come our way sometimes. But we do specialty training on abductions, on um, active shooter situations, on um, anything really that can come your way, especially 
you know, as it starts to become prevalent in our uh, community, like talking about the opioid crisis, now with our medical dispatch protocols, we have um, instructions on Narcan and how to handle that. And, you know, it's just as an industry, we try to stay on top of any public safety trend that is coming and that we're seeing um, in our communities, and then we're just ready to handle them whenever they do come in. And so, um, thankfully, we have good field personnel that help us and support us in that training to make sure that we are giving good instructions and um, techniques and uh, skills over the phone to make sure that the successful or that the outcome is successful. But really, it's whatever comes our way, we're going to handle. We don't turn anything away. Scott, do you want to talk a little bit about the the wide variety of things that the EMS is able to do? Sure, and I kind of give you an overview. I, I, some of the terms you may have heard of is what's a EMT versus a paramedic. An EMT is emergency medical technician. That's a basic level, and that usually takes about a semester. And there's several Butler County Community College, Hutchinson Community College, Cali County. There's a variety of them that offer an EMT course. It's a semester long, about 240 hours. And at the end of that, you can go take the state boards for the state of Kansas and become certified as an EMT. And that trains you how to perform CPR, basic splinting, basic airway management, hemorrhage control, some of the things that EMTs do. And if you want to go on and, and get further education, you become a paramedic, which is about a 1,200-hour curriculum here in Kansas. And it covers more advanced airway management, pharmaceuticals, um, intravenous drug administration, and 12-lead EKG acquisition interpretation. So it's a much more advanced level course. Uh, you'll spend 400 hours in didactic classroom education, another 400 hours in a clinical environment in a hospital, and another 400 hours in field internship in the back of an ambulance with trained paramedics over a course of about three months. And then you can get certified as a paramedic and a wide range of things. As medicine has evolved, so is the equipment and our protocols that we currently use. So we have a piece of biomedical equipment uh, called, it's a 12-lead EKG and it's a defibrillator called a LifePak 15 made by Physio Control. And it, it do a variety of things now. 12-lead EKGs, it, it, it monitors oxygen saturation, it monitors exhaled CO2, it can do 12 leads in a variety. It can transmit that 12 lead to the hospital so the cardiologist can read that 12 lead as we acquire that from the patient. So it, it's about $30,000 with all the batteries and attachments that we have with it per device. And we have 34 devices in our system today. So well over a million dollars just in that piece of equipment alone. Uh, so technology is pretty prevalent. We're very dependent on it. Some of the same software that uh, our folks use, it's in the dispatch center as well, uh, to help us get to places more effectively and efficiently and know where to staff our resources throughout any hour of any given day. And this piece of software, it's an acronym, is called MARVELOUS. It stands for Mobile Error Routing Vehicle Location Information System, and it helps the LORS dispatcher send the closest unit by time, and it helps us in the field and the field supervisors manage our resources during any given day. We staff at a minimum 14 ambulances, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And during the day, during peak times, we ramp up to 20 at peak times. After noon uh, on any given day, we're up to 20 ambulances staffed throughout Wichita and Sedgwick County. 
And although we have brick and mortar stations, we have 16 of them throughout Wichita and Sedgwick County, they're constantly moving across the community because the supervisors and dispatchers are moving them. If it's very busy in the south end of town, we'll shift resources to help cover so our response time's lower should another call come out during that time. So a lot of things that we're doing and, and, and technology has really helped us be more effective and efficient with our resources. And how many folks are EMTs versus how many are paramedics? What's the ratio there? Well, the ratio right now, we have uh, four full-time EMTs. The majority of our staff are paramedic. Of the 142 field-level paramedics that are out on the street, uh, four of those are EMTs. We have some also in, the, in, a, in our uh, administrative staff, uh, but we have about, varies between 12 and 20 on our part-time staff. So we, have, we, we employ both EMTs and paramedics on our part-time in our reserve corps as well. Uh, this is a question for all of you. What uh, are some things that the public can do to reduce the need for emergency services, some preventative measures? Well, maybe not so much for Ken, but <laughs> praying, maybe. <laughs> I do have a few, you know, and this is just from experience. You know, every year we, we talk about um, weather awareness and, you know, the likelihood of any one person getting hit by a tornado at your house is pretty small when I mean, it comes down to it statistically. But in the state of Kansas, it's actually more likely here than anywhere else in the country. So, you know, have a severe weather safety kit. Have a whistle so that if you're stuck in a shelter, you can blow the whistle because it's going to, you know, you're, you're gonna, your voice is going to give out before the whistle. Bring shoes in there because you're going to have glass everywhere and things like that. So think ahead. Um, I can think of a case, and, and, and I think what people in this part of the country don't really think of much is winter weather safety. And, and I say that because, you know, when I lived in Wisconsin, the big thing was is in the winter, carry a safety kit in your car in case you get stranded, you know, with some, um, some kind of food or what have you, blankets. But, uh, you know, there's a case um, a number of years ago where there was uh, a blizzard on Christmas Eve that came up through Oklahoma and, and eastern Kansas. And a lot of people got stranded down there and had to be rescued out of their car. And, you know, they're driving around when it's, it's 28 degrees out and, and a blizzard with shorts and a T-shirt. So, I mean, I think by and large people in southern climates don't think of winter weather being a hazard, but it can be. So just thinking ahead and being safe, I think, at least from our point in the weather, you know, don't go taking a raft down the river when it's really ripping down you know I mean just things that are common sense that I know it's thrilling to do stuff like that but the end result may not be fun so well there's a couple things that come to mind I mean obviously being good community neighbors you know looking in on one another you may have folks that are elderly that are neighbors or have physical limitations and checking in on them and making sure they have things and they get the newspaper a lot of things, because we get a lot of folks come, in, especially in inclement weather with falls and stuff, and a lot of that is preventable. Uh, don't text and drive. Don't drink and drive. There's many things that we can do to decrease the reliance on the 911 center. Chief Snow alluded to and others, we have a limited and finite number of resources, and they're very, very expensive to add resources. So what can we do to help prevent some of the things that, that folks call 911 for? So for an example on expense, for me to put on a 24 hour, seven day a week crew 
just the crew and the ambulance and equipment runs about $750,000, and a lot of that's recurring. So it's very, very expensive to add resources. So we're funded through, a, um, through user fees. That's our predominant, we get reimbursed for the services that we provide. So through insurance payers, uh, typically, and, and Medicare and Medicaid being our largest payer, but about 80% of my operating budget is paid for out of the paid for by those who use the service. The other 20%, 15 to 20% is tax support. Uh, if you're a citizen in Sedgwick County, this year you're paying about $8 per capita for EMS service if you never use it. So you're paying eight bucks to have EMS around, and if you use it, then we bill for those particular services. But it's still, I have a $19.5 million operating budget next year, and a large part of that obviously is personnel. About 14 million of that is for people, and the rest is for the equipment and the operation of that equipment. I spend about $1.2 million a, a year just in the medications and operating supplies that we use to provide to patients. So. It is expensive, but we can do some things in our community, help one another, probably decrease and minimize the, the, the risk of folks of using 911. From the uh, fire department's perspective, a couple different things. First of all, all of you should have a smoke alarm. And if you don't, please call our office at 316 316-268-4510. 316-268-4510. One zero, and we will give you a smoke detector or smoke alarm, and it makes no difference what your economic um, uh, level is. We ask no questions, and we'll also install it for you. So all you have to do is call that number, and we'll get you on a list, and we'll get a smoke alarm uh, put in, in your residence, at least one. The second thing is take heed when, um, uh, you know, Kent talks about, uh, you know, the media coming across the television and the radio and emergency management coming across and giving you warnings. Take heed to those things. Um, you know, uh, take them very seriously uh, because oftentimes that, that doesn't happen. Um, and if you would, that would certainly save um, us quite a bit of uh, um, time, to be quite honest with you, because there are, you know, Kent says, you know, he talks about uh, Kansas being the number one as far as tornadoes. There are times in which, you know, if you do take a direct hit, you know, our resources are going to be tied up there, and we do have a limited number of resources. Um, so those two things are probably the biggest in regards to, from the Wichita Fire Department's perspective. Um, other than that, we're there to help you in any way we possibly can. But uh, like Elora alluded to, um, please be use common sense in regards to what you call for 911. Um, you know, we want to be your family or your community firehouse. But at the end of the day, you know, we do have limited resources. And if we are busy helping you get a ferret out of a window well and somebody's having a heart attack, that means that that apparatus is tied up with the ferret out of the window well versus um, somebody's loved one on a cardiac arrest. I'll throw my two cents in. Uh, mine is really, I just want to reiterate the cell phone numbers because I find them to be rather shocking. And uh, when we started tracking this, we didn't realize that the issue was as pervasive as it was. But think about really that 20% of our call volume in Sedgwick County are those cell phone missiles. Uh, those, if you're throwing it in your pocket or your purse and you're not locking it down first, uh, we say don't play around, lock it down because 
we don't want you to have your kids playing with your cell phones and then we want you to lock it down before you put it into your pocket or purse and uh, I know how easy it can happen because I have missed out not 911 but some other people um, and putting my phone away and not paying attention to it so we get why it happens and how it happens but every call that comes in if we have an open line we have to listen to that line and we have to query it to see if there's an emergency and we query it with TTY tones to make sure it's not somebody from the deaf or hard of hearing community and so we're on that phone like investigators listening for anything that's amiss and trying to make sure that there's no emergency and then we have to call that call back and verify that there's no emergency and so all those things take time and again while my time is dedicated to that I'm not taking that call if you had you know a cardiac arrest or your house is on fire things like that those are calls that I'm not taking because I'm dealing with that cell phone misstyle and so when you think about instances in your life where seconds matter, if your house is on fire, you don't want to wait five seconds, 10 seconds, whatever, for me to be done querying this line of this cell phone missile. You want me there, you want me answering it, and you want me sending help as quickly as possible. So that's something in being a good steward in your community and a big, good steward to your 911 system that I would ask you to not only take home with you, but take home and spread the message about how important it is for you to be responsible with those cell phones. What are some of the most unrealistic things that you see in TV or media about your industry? Anyone can jump in there. Uh, one of the things that I know that we get frustration on is that people think when they call in on their cell phones, we can immediately triangulate their, their XY coordinates and we can see exactly where they are and it's instantaneous and we know where you are and that's not quite the case. Um, there's actually, there's a lot of publications out there that are discussing this where the cell phone, the GPS capabilities within your cell phone are separate from what is happening in your apps, such as Uber, and what's happening with your 911 services. And so there is a lot of money thrown at the XY coordinate, um, the capture of that within these apps that make money, and there's not a whole lot of that thrown at 911 because we don't make anybody money. And so uh, while it may be really instantaneous when you call for Uber that they know where you are, it's not quite as instantaneous for 911 to know where you are. And so it's really important as you're traveling and you're out and about that you know where you are because it's not quite like it is on TV. And now there's a 911 show on TV that I've not seen, but I guess it works really slick on that show and not so much in real life. Is there a way to maybe opt in or something for 911? Is that in the works? <laughs> really, it's, it is on the cell phone carriers to provide that better technology uh, within their system to provide us with that uh, faster, more reliable XY coordinate. And don't get me wrong, we will find you. If we need to find you, we're going to find you. We're going to, um, between us and our community partners, we will do all that we can to find you. Uh, but it's just not as quick and seamless as it should be, honestly. Um, probably the biggest thing, the when you watch fires on TV, you know, you can see really well. Um, you see what's going on. That's a myth, a total myth. Um, I'd invite each one of you to come out to our Citizens Academy, which we're taking enrollment now. And we'll give you an opportunity to experience just a little bit of what we do whenever there's an actual fire. We'll put you in the gear. Um, we'll smoke up rooms, and we'll let you uh, go in and uh, try to figure out where we set that particular uh, fire, where the hot spot happens to be, because um, they're called um, IDLH situations in which um, it's called immediate death and life hazard. Um, smoke is dark and it's ugly and it's um, very black. That's why we wear the mask and uh, we can't see very well. And, 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 and the other disadvantage that we have is um, 
we don't know the layout of most buildings that we go into. That's why we take every opportunity we possibly can. You'll see us out doing building inspections. Those are important to us. Making medical calls, you'll watch us survey around your home because if we ever are, have to come back to your home because you actually have a fire, it provides us with a little bit of knowledge of what the layout of your home is. You know your home, we don't know your home. So, you know, we, we struggle with a lot of unknowns when we arrive on a, on a particular fire, a building fire, a house fire, any of those types of things. First of all, we can't see, so it's blind. We're going in there blind. And then uh, second of all, we have no idea what the layout of your home is. So those are two gigantic myths when you watch um, any kind of fire story on TV. For me, it's uh, it all started with Twister, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, since that movie, uh, you know, chasing has become more of a spectator sport, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, I think it's created a lot of anxiety in the general community that, you know, there's these massive tornadoes always on the attack. I think it creates a false sense of that. Um, and I think it also creates a false sense that you can get real close to these and be safe. And as we know over the last few years that people that are even so-called professionals can get killed in these. And so I think the big myth is that those two things, you know, that first of all, there's, I mean, I, I know people in my own industry that think I'm crazy for living in Kansas, that they just couldn't live here because they'd be so paranoid of the tornadic threat. And I think it's just because they're watching too much of the Weather Channel and some of these other places that like to kind of continue on that myth not to pick on them there's plenty of them but i mean and but it, it just those things like that that kind of you know there's plenty of them in our line of work i mean the social meteorologists and all these other types that we kind of you know so yeah i guess the other one is is there's this there's a sense of um expect expected accuracy i mean in, in our line of work i mean we want to be right every time but it's a pretty humbling. It's a pretty humbling science, you know. If we go and make a forecast and it's wrong, if by and large, if somebody does something and they mess it up at work, they can go home and forget about it, and the next day start again. Well, if we mess up, we're sitting at home and we're living through it for the next 12 to 24 hours. So it's not a lot of fun when you're staring at your error all day and night. And and the other, you know, there, there's just a lot of that type of thing to it. And, and the other, so. I guess to belabor the point, you know, we're sitting here like for a winter storm agonizing over, you know, 15, 20 miles of where the rain and snow line is going to be, and the storm's like 2,000 miles away over the Pacific Ocean. So, and that's, you know, two to three days away. So, you know, over the years we've gotten pretty good by and large. I mean, there's probably always going to be detractors, but, um, you know, that's, it's pretty, um, it's a pretty humbling science that, yeah, a lot of people think, oh, you just can do whatever you want, and it doesn't matter, and this, but you know, it's pretty, it's pretty humbling. Uh, I have another question for you, Ken. Uh, are lightning predictions possible? Will they be possible in the future? Is that something that is being explored? It is. Uh, part of the new satellite technology it has a global lightning mapper, is what it's called, with it. And that's going to give us more technology right now. There's a few different lightning detection networks out there. And we know enough about storms to understand when lightning occurs. Uh, but we're not very good at predicting exactly maybe where strikes are. Because you can get a lightning strike 30 miles away from a storm. And so can we predict that? No. Uh, I can't say that we will or won't be able to do that in the future. 
but that has to under, be able to understanding and even modeling the charge charges of the atmosphere, and a lot of it has to do with icing and all this business in the clouds. But I, part of the new satellite technology, uh, in addition to some of the things that we can see, you know, with the global lightning mapper, is we're able to see cloud ice and some other things in there that we really couldn't see. We more had to infer. Uh, in the past, but we can see that better now, and I think that it will at least lend itself for us to have better lightning prediction as far as uh, if you aggregate an area, is lightning moving in, yes or no, and, or when it can expect uh, that to happen. Yeah, I think we can do that. Can you recommend any apps, weather apps, beyond or in addition to the National Weather Service app? Well, we don't actually have an app. Oh. And I cannot recommend that because well, that I am would be a, a federal employee. <laughs> Because that would be sponsoring private weather <laughs> companies over others, and I can't do that. So I would say find one that you like and explore them. Um, and I don't know, Elora, if you want to start with this one, but has the closure of police stations after 5 p.m. and on weekends affected 911 calls? Yes. We were also talking about special occasions, if you want to add that into this. Sure, as well. yeah. Um, the great thing about the police stations is that provides a resource for us to uh, direct citizens to when they have questions that aren't really emergencies, but um, something that comes to mind is civil action, for example. If I have a custody dispute and I'm not sure what way to go with it, and so we have people that will call 911 for those situations, and it's good to direct them over to that police officer in the station that can better explain what their rights are, what their resources are, uh, things like that. And so not having those officers at those stations after hours to answer those calls uh, puts more back on us and field officers to take those calls um, when we don't have anywhere else to send them. And so some of those we can direct them to call back the next day during business hours. Some are not as easy to. And then the flip side of that also is that those stations are t um, a safe space to send somebody if we've got a rolling disturbance, for example, and you're chasing me in the car and I can direct you uh, to that to go to that police station and there's an officer there that we know is in the station, that resource is gone now also for us to do that. And of course we have other ways that we can manage that and we would always manage it, but that is something that has created some different dynamics for us of how to deal with those things. I mean, talking about special responses, looking at what's going around, uh, going on in the city of Wichita this week, we have the NCAA tournament here and so we work really closely with the city of Wichita and the sheriff's office to manage those types of events. And so uh, we go, you think about that, River Festival, Prairie Fire Marathon, um, any number of events that happen around our community that create a big law enforcement presence and a big community presence. And we are typically involved in, in making sure that we um, coordinate events with officers to ensure that they're safe, that to ensure the safety of the citizens and the visitors that attend that, to make sure that they know where to go, where we can send help, what help is going to be more quickly responding to that, how they want to respond. There's a whole myriad of issues that go into hosting a big community event like this. And so um, we are anticipating a really big, uh, busy weekend. We've got St. Patrick's Day, we've got a swap meet, we've got NCAA, we've got a lot of green beer and a lot of just a lot going on and so but we are ready for it we've been planning for it we are well staffed um, and well trained and ready to go and so it's going to be a fun week in Wichita. So you prepare for those events but does does it always mean that there's an uptick in need during special occasion events? We are pretty good at pre 
predicting the uptick of need, yes. And so we know uh, River Festival, NCAA, things like this, we know we're going to get, there's just a lot of people, a lot of people in one space, a lot of activity, a lot of alcohol on weekends like this with um, St. Patrick's Day. And so we're pretty good at predicting what's going to happen. Even if we weren't hosting the NCAA tournament, we know on certain big game days, things like that, where we know we're going to have a lot of people in bars watching games and drinking alcohol, that there's um, a good chance there for some factors to come together that can create some opportunities for a less than enjoyable time for people. <laughs> so we're ready for those. Um, how should citizens report issues like traffic light malfunctions or obstacles in the road? They should call the city of Wichita or be other than 911? Sure, it depends on where it is and what it is. If you have a traffic light malfunctioning at a major intersection, which you know I guess it would be for it to, there to be a traffic light, then you need to call us um, at 911 and we can get somebody out there more immediately. And you think about some of these county roads and if there's a stop side down, that could be a really uh, quickly fatal in um, situation. Uh, fatalities have happened because of those situations. So we wanna get somebody out there quickly to replace that. If it's something where the I'm trying to give a good example, something that can wait until the next day, something that's better directed to a community policing officer, like if your neighbor, for example, continually parks over the sidewalk and it's been bothering you. That's something that doesn't necessarily need to come in 911, and it does often because people don't know where that other resource is, but that's where it's Google can be your friend, get on there, uh, Wichita Police Department, to find your community policing officer, find their email, find the number to the station, things like that, and uh, that's a better resource for that than calling 911. This question is for Tammy. Um, both EMS and emergency dispatch are countywide functions. Will the fire service ever move in that direction? Is that a conversation rather than a city function? So are you asking me, will the Wichita Fire Department and the county fire department consolidate? Is that the question you're asking yes. me? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the politicians, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> and the politicians, that's something that they discuss. And there's been, um, uh, for as long as I've been with the fire department, which is 30 years, they have, uh, you know, they've had it oftentimes um, discussed. And I think the latest study was back in 2007, in which they uh, analyzed the data to figure out if it would be good to, um, to consolidate the two fire departments. So. Um, another question for you, Laura. How do you suggest uh, contacting 911 when you're in a situation where you can't speak or disclose your location? So again, that text to 911 is a great opportunity if you can't speak. Even uh, there was a call, a woman had called in and she had dropped her phone in water and it, it wasn't working properly because of that. And so even if it's because of a technical issue or an issue with your device that you can't speak, that text to 911 is a really great resource. And you literally just text 911. There's nothing else to do with that. You just type 911 in that to field and then type in for that. As far as not being able to disclose your location, I would hope that when you text in, you could disclose your location. But if nothing else, like I said, we've got resources where we will start trying to find you. Um, not to sound creepy like we will hunt you, but we're, if you need help, we're going to try to get help to you as quickly as possible. And so we'll start tapping into some of our resources that we have available for us to, to try to find your location. But if you're out and about in the community, it doesn't do us much good necessarily if we don't have that XY coordinate um, from that call. We do get some coordinates from text into 911, but they're not as uh, refined as what comes in on a voice call. That's why it's the call if you can, text if you can't. Uh, we can start checking databases, things like that. But 
really that location is the most important thing you can always give on a 911 call um, because if that's all you can get out, that's at least something to get somebody started your way. Um, in the case of a mass emergency, how can registered nurses and health workers come to assistance? Should they contact anyone to see if their services are needed? Is that anything, can you speak to that, Scott? Uh, typically, as we plan and we look at now with the active shooter scenarios and how prevalent that seems to be in our community and how do we come together as healthcare professionals to better serve uh, our community should that happen. And many times right now, uh, when we plan for these things, we try to engage and be cl very collaborative in how we're interoperable between all disciplines of healthcare. And that includes registered nurses and physicians and, and things like that. And I can go even go back to the Andover tornado in 1991. We had a certain uh, number of, of nurses and physicians actually come to the scene as we set up a, a temporary treatment area so they could assist there. But a lot of those are going to be needed. Obviously, we're going to deliver them to hospitals, and that's where they're going to get called back to. That's where those resources are going to be needed. And uh, we will collaborate. We have mutual aid agreements in place that we can call folks from other jurisdictions to come in and help us with EMS. Um, the MERGE team that's here in Region 3 of, of, of Kansas has some resources that we can tap into to get resources here if we'd have a large-scale incident where we'd need additional pre-hospital health care first responder folks, we can tap in to that resource and then the physicians and nurses to be where they need to be to take care of the patient after we get them there. Um, do any of your organizations have collaborations with the Air Force Base? Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Tammy? Yeah, we have a really good relationship with the Air Force Base, and um, in fact, um, depending on what area of the city or county, um, they oftentimes leave and respond on a, as, a, as one of the first units, depending on the location. And then we can also, they have resources since they're federal government, uh, they seem to have a um, few more resources that we don't, and so we can utilize some of their resources. Um, for example, uh, most recent um, incident would be uh, they have foam that they'll allow us to use. Um, so yeah, they're very good partners. Um, and, and we have an agreement with them that if we need them, all we need to do is call them. If they need us, we'll, we'll help them also, so. We do have a, a working relationship with the base, mainly with weather forecasting um, for whatever their exercises or what have you they're doing over there. Um, and if it's some kind of inclement weather coming in, we will work with them. We also have understandings on, uh, they use our radar for certain things, and so we have uh, an agreement on how that's going to be done. So that's basically how we work with them. Ken, can you also talk about uh, what you see as affecting climate change, and maybe if you can give any tips on urban farming? <laughs> oh, sure. And and that's that there is something to be said about that. and. So as far as climate change in the state of Kansas, and I'll just focus on the area that we serve, which is central, south central, and southeast Kansas. If you go in and look in the climate stations, there have been changing over the years, as you would expect. Some get warmer, some are getting cooler. There's all kinds of things like that going on in the data. Um, some of the things that we know that have been occurring over the last, well, I'll just say 50 to 100 years, is urbanization is really, um, 
you know, these urban heat islands do cause uh, big issues sometimes in the summer when we have a lot of heat. Um, and so those areas need to be have more attention paid to them. Uh, even, you know, back in 19, I think 95, as an example, Chicago had this big heat wave, killed several hundred people there in the city. Well, that uh, spawned a bunch of awareness in that kind of environment. And so we've taken that all the way down to our level here. And so we work, again, with the partners in that to predict heat. Um, some of the other things that affect the state of Kansas are, for example, the, the irrigation of farmland. So how that works out is there's a wheat belt, the winter wheat belt, that comes up from Oklahoma into Kansas. And what happens is, is when you irrigate that or when you have a wet um, winter, spring season and the wheat grows a lot, you get a lot more evapotranspiration or moisture being pulled into the atmosphere. So that does a couple things. So um, if that is the case, it will be, uh, some of you are familiar with the dew point temperature, about eight degrees uh, higher dew point temperature in that wheat belt. So that will cause temperatures not to go down as low at night. It'll also, um, when we have a dry line, um, or, or I, I guess for those of you who know that, it's called a dry line, or, or this boundary that comes out of the western part of the state where thunderstorms will develop off of, sometimes that will cause the storms to develop further to the west because you have that boundary there in the moisture. If it's been dry and that uh, wheat belt isn't having as much of an influence in putting moisture in the atmosphere, that boundary can be further to the east. So it can affect where thunderstorms develop, thunderstorm development occurs. It can also affect the severity of the storms. Some things that we look for, for example, for storms that will produce tornadoes is, is that base of that storm going to be closer to the ground. We look at that because it's easier for a tornado to form in that environment. And so if it's more moist, we can perhaps have a, a, an outbreak of, of tornadoes versus if it wasn't there would be less likelihood of it. So those are some of the things that are occurring with agriculture and that, that have changed over the years in irrigation or what have you. Maybe research has also helped us uncover some of that. Um, since the fire department is going to multi-band radio instead of the dual band that EM and other departments use, will they still be able to communicate in a timely way? Laura and Tammy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, um, we recently, our current radios, um, our administrative radios and also our firefighter radios, uh, within the next couple of years, will be, their lifespan will, will be terminated. And so we um, have asked for a grant. And what we did was uh, we went after, to put it in layman's terms, we went after the Cadillac. Um, and uh, But no matter what um, type of radio any, any of our surrounding partners have, we'll be able to communicate with them. And um, one of the other things that we did was um, we married up um, an opportunity to, uh, to um, get a new what we call a communication command vehicle. And in that, we put the latest technology. So we can go out. Um, you know, when we went out uh, uh, at some of the disasters to help our neighbors, uh, for example, out in Greensburg, um, and just recently down in Comanche County, um, some of those, uh, you know, smaller communities, they don't have the resources that uh, we do. And so uh, they, they oftentimes operate on hand-me-downs. Um, so their radio system isn't as robust as ours. And uh, knowing that when we design this new vehicle, which we should get sometime before the end of the year, we um, put in it some technology that will marry up any radio system throughout the United States with, with another radio system. 
So you basically, uh, we can go anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's uh, VHS, if it, I mean VHF, UHF, if it's digital, makes no difference what type of radio system they have. We can marry those up at any large disaster. So yeah, what we did was try to forecast and be very proactive in regards to our radios. Laura, can you talk a little bit about the the multitasking? Um, someone's wondering if emergency responders can actually hear the 911 callers, um, or are you sort of relaying information? How does that work? Right. So we are relaying information. We are uh, taking what we are capturing on the phone and kind of filtering it out and piecing it together in a way that helps the first responders that are en route to the call to be ready to go hit the ground running when they get there. And so the questions that we are asking are very focused and direct questions um, that sometimes seem irrelevant or um, extraneous to the situation. But people in crisis or people that are in a panic situation tend to forget some of the details that would seem really major when they're stepped away from it, but in the midst of it, they're forgetting this. And so uh, one example, there was somebody whose car had gotten stolen. It's not funny, but then they said, oh, well, my kid's in it. Well, that's pretty important up front to know those things. And so um, that's something that it just was tunnel vision as they are in it. And that's what we're trying to direct people through is to get a more comprehensive look on what's going on there. And then, like I said, putting that together in a way that as we're relaying it to field personnel that's responding that, for example, law enforcement coming into the area, they know who the good guy is, who the bad guy is, who their, who their suspect is on a robbery, for example, what kind of vehicle they're in, who they need to contact, um, who when they get out on scene is our caller versus the uh, person that is you know, suspect of doing something. And so those are the questions that we're asking with medical calls, as Scott alluded to earlier, that not every medical response needs to be a red light and siren response, that it's really uh, better for the community and better for the patient for not everything to have that really rapid response. Um, they can respond quickly without that. And so the questions that we are asking uh, determines what kind of response you get. Who comes? Is it just EMS? Is it fire and EMS? Is it something that's purely medical, like a transfer where fire is not necessarily needed as a first responder? Um, is it something where we need to send two fire trucks versus three fire trucks or you know, whatever on a, a fire situation? So those questions that we are asking really direct that response. So while they seem extraneous in the situation, and while it may feel like it's slowing things down, it's actually making things more effective and efficient once units get on scene. How is 911 in Cedric County different in Kansas versus different in Cedric County rather than Kansas and the nation overall? Absolutely. We're really unique in our system, and we have, I think, a system you can be really proud of as a citizen or a taxpayer in Sedgwick County. Um, we handle all emergency calls within the Sedgwick County borders, and so you think about all of the small communities we have um, from Mount Hope down to Derby, Park City, Hayesville, all that stuff. It all filters through one, what's called a consolidated dispatch center, which means we handle police, fire, and EMS calls. Uh, we take around 660,000 911 calls a year. We handle up to 800,000 emergency events, 800 and some change thousand emergency events in a year. We are a very, very busy system, much more so than many 911 centers our size, and definitely the busiest system in the state of Kansas. And so 
that is something that as we are uh, training at a state level and looking at um, deployment models and things at a state level, we have to always recognize that we are very different in Sedgwick County in the city of Wichita and that we're handling a little bit bigger of a system than most communities in Kansas. Um, but even throughout the nation, most communities our size have a different setup or a different model where maybe you call 911 and that call gets shunted off or pushed off to a medical call taker if, if you have a medical emergency or it goes off to a police station if you have a police emergency. And we keep it all under one roof, which I think helps us to collaborate more efficiently during situations that take a multi-agency response. And it helps with that communication and just makes things go much more smoothly, but it does make for a very busy center. Um, just to speak real quick on the multitasking, we have some employees that are call takers that I say are just taking 911 calls, but really that in itself can be um, a lot to manage. And so they are that front line when you have a 911 call that comes in and they are solely focused on that 911 call. In addition to that, we have dispatchers that are call takers also. And so if you were to come through our center, you would see that they have on two headsets. So they've got in one ear, they've got radio traffic and the other ear, they're taking a phone call and they're balancing those conversations back and forth. Between that though, we're also, you have to be aware of what's going on around the room because if I'm dispatching for law enforcement and I've got a call that's right there on a jurisdictional line with the sheriff's office, for example, and then I need to be communicating with them and making sure, well, maybe this call over here is tied to my call that I'm working here that's a block away because uh, my suspect's on the run, something like that. If I have a grass fire here at 235 in Kellogg, but I have another one down the road, then that car is traveling. So you have to be aware of all this stuff that's going on in the room. And so when I say it's multitasking, it's multitasking at a level that some can be overwhelming sometimes. And really you have a 911 team that is phenomenal at handling it. They do an amazing job for our community and it's, I'm impressed every day. So everybody here has staffs who handle high pressure situations. What are some of the sort of uh, stress management techniques and mental health uh, uh, techniques that you use to kind of keep your staffs um, healthy and, and well-adjusted and not burn out. Scott, do you want to start? Sure. That's really come to the forefront over since I've started. Back in the day when I started, that really wasn't a resource that we had available. It was, you signed up for this, you get in there one call after another, and you just do it because that's what you're supposed to do. And Today, I think we're a little bit more sensitive and rightly so for folks and making sure people have resources that they need because what we see on any given day is, is more than some people will experience in a lifetime. And they're not pleasant a lot of times, obviously, what we see. And certainly wears on our folks. We're, we're all human. We're, we're passionate about what we do and we, we care. And because of that, it impacts us and our staff as well. And we developed over the years, obviously through, through training and education, uh, how to cope with seeing what we see and what we do each and every day. So we can come back the next day and give 100% each and every day to take care of ourselves. So recognizing that there's a lot of peer and emotional and psychological support groups out there now, and we're getting more and more engaged with those folks. We have, we have resources within the county and external to the county that we can help people navigate and sit down and talk and go through some of these high profile cases. It's not always the high profile ones that bother people, it's the everyday in and out what they see day after day that have a cumulative effect 
on their psychological well-being. And noticing those subtle signs and symptoms and getting people that type of help can help prolong their career. And uh, it takes some fairly unique folks, whatever you're in 911. I couldn't do what Alora's folks do. I simply could not do it. Or what Tammy and the firefighters do and Swift Water Rescue, Hazmat, and, and, and some of the things that they do. And just like EMS, not everybody can do EMS. So we want to protect the people that we have. We want to make sure they're well taken care of and making sure they're out there every day that they can focus 100% if they come to your house for your emergency. So they are focused on you and or your loved one to take care of them. So it's very important that we get those folks to those resources. So we're very cognizant of that now more than we were 20 years ago. And I'll, I'll uh, piggyback on what uh, Scott has talked about. Um, you know, um, you know, he's 100% correct. When I hired on 30 years ago, you know, as basically every man for himself, you deal with it. You know, you signed up for it, you deal with it. Um, it that whole uh, sensitivity has truly evolved. For the Wichita Fire Department, we have a program, a couple different programs. We actually instituted a, a chaplain program, but uh, besides that, we have a program called Psychological First Aid that has um, uh, integrated our department. We have uh, people that go to specialized training. First of all, all of our firefighters are trained in psychological first aid, but just like anything else, you know, some people excel at it and have better skill sets. So we have put together a psychological first aid team and uh, we pay attention. Our chiefs pay attention to different calls. Some calls are, any call involving a child um, is very um, traumatic for our people to deal with, especially if they have children at home as around that same age. So we pay attention to those kinds of things and there's warning signs. Uh, one of the luxuries that we have as being firefighters is we do spend 24 hours together. Every third day we spend together, and if you think about that, you know, a person puts in 30 years, you know, we spend one-third of our life with another four or five individuals. So they are part of our extended family, and we get to know each other very, very well. And there's warning signs, like Scott said, that, um, you know, we're all trained and paying attention to. So we have... Um, you know, that opportunity in um, which we have a chaplain program in psychological first aid in which we'll interject those team members in. And it's just basically sitting down and talking. A lot of times if they can just talk to somebody they feel comfortable with and uh, share, you know, their thoughts and their thought processes and how their feelings and their emotions with somebody that's um, been there and done that or had that skill set, um, is awful, I, I mean, oftentimes um, assist them. And then we have more professional programs too, you know, just like the county does, um, you know, where if we needed to reach out to somebody with a, even more expertise than what we have, you know, there's those options also. So it's a, a little unique uh, just because, you know, we're, uh, our main issue is during severe weather for, especially with a significant tornado, um, you know, and, and I guess Joplin would be one or maybe Greensburg or, or Andover or the, something like that is where that would really come into play with our staff or maybe, you know, like some of the ones that have happened down in Norman um, where, you know, the, the person that was issuing the warnings or the team can always feel this, I could have done better, why did so many people die? And then you have to go out and survey the damage knowing there's all these people that perished and you're the one that was pushing the button, so to speak. And so 
we have to guard against that. We do get into some of the, um, the training there, and, and also we have an employee assistance program for that. But it's something that we've become, I guess, more trained on and more aware of in our agency over the years because of some of these significant events. Do any of these services partner with other counties or other cities around Kansas? Are there, are there broader partnerships? For any of these services, yeah. yeah go ahead. So within 911, we have uh, the Kansas 911 Coordinating Council that is kind of our broad um, service provider. And so, for example, here in Sedgwick County, we are on a hosted 911 phone system that is hosted by the Kansas 911 Coordinating Council. And what that allows us to do is share some resources throughout the state of Kansas in um, overflow situations. If we were to lose our 911 system here, for example, we can start overflowing to a neighboring county. Um, for us, as I said, we're a little bit different in Kansas than our other neighboring counties. And so when we overflow, if we were to overflow, we would inundate. Uh, Keeman County, for example, has one dispatcher on at a time where we have a 26-seat PSAP, our 911 center. Uh, they have one. And so we have to be very careful and mindful of that when sharing uh, workload from Sedgwick County. We are, and we've got great community partnerships in that. But that is our uh, kind of statewide initiative. Um, and then we have some other collaboration uh, possibilities through resource management. If we were to have a huge, for example, when the Greensburg tornado came in, I deployed out to there to help with them because their dispatchers were impacted by it as well as, you know, being there dispatching. And so they needed to take care of their homes, to take care of their families. And so we have that ability to help each other out uh, throughout the state and throughout the region. We're, oh, did you have something to add? Just going to say, from the fire service, you know, you talk about um, psychological first aid is a national program, and it's driven from the National Fire Academy, which is kind of um, our leading um, entity throughout the nation. So, yeah, um, we have a lot of opportunity to partner, a lot of t opportunity to train. And so, yeah, they're a very good resource. We have time just for a couple more questions. I'll try to get through here. Um, does the order a pizza code for calling 911 really work when calling in a domestic violence emergency and unable to disclose details? Oh, um, I can in the right situation. We always hate to see these things go around on social media. There's a lot of them that go around about hit this button and it'll call directly to 911 or say this keyword. and. Most often we're the last ones to see that and we say, well, gosh, we had no idea. Um, we try always to pick up on situational clues that tell us that something is going on that's not exactly what somebody is saying that it is. And so I think any time that you are um, evasive on the phone and trying to cue us into something, I hope that we would pick up on it. Um, but I would never, I mean, I think always the most direct you can be, that's where that texting into 911 becomes really helpful because you can, you know, kind of mask what you're doing with that. And so I think, yes, we could pick up on verbal cues and we would always attempt to and, and would hope that we would, but I would not count on that in emergency situations. I would always make sure you can verbalize what's going on or text it in. Uh, do firefighters pay attention to stickers in house windows indicating that there is a pet in the house? Uh, if someone is not home but their pet is, will the pet catch firefighters' attention? Yeah, most definitely. And we strongly encourage uh, the utilization of stickers on the windows in the appropriate places. Um, 
And as far as pets, yeah, yeah, that's, um, we've partnered with PETA. Um, they provide us with a rescue pet mask. And uh, we, we take that very seriously. We understand that uh, pets are um, parts of people's lives, uh, very vital almost. Uh, some people would die and let their pet live. Um, and we understand that. So yeah, they're extremely important to us. Um, if we know that there's a pet inside a smoke-filled house, you know, we will uh, go in and get it, um, just like we would a human being. Uh, last question for the evening. Are there any opportunities to volunteer for any of these services? We always like to kind of end it with how can we help, how can we participate in in our community in this way? Sure. For us, usually on, on the volunteer basis, it's typically got to be certified as an EMT. That's the program that we have. So you have to have state certification, which if anybody's interested, you have folks that are interested, you can see me afterwards and I can uh, certainly point you in the right direction to do that. But a lot of folks, for a very minimal investment, uh, people become part of the reserve program. I came up out of the reserve program. We have many that's folks that's went on to have a career in EMS come out of the reserve program. So uh, obviously you can visit us. Uh, we have a lot of PR events. We can, we can engage you in other ways to see if that's something you may be interested in. So for EMS, that's, that's what we do. No, not really with 911. So it's to take 911 calls, it's you're looking at uh, around nine to 10 weeks of training just to take that 911 call and then an additional three, four weeks, I'm so sorry, to dispatch EMS and fire, then an additional four weeks to dispatch law enforcement. So we're talking about a lot of training. We dispatch for 31 agencies. We have over 160 call types and classifications. You have to be certified through the state of Kansas through to handle sensitive information. So there's just a lot that goes into it that isn't necessarily something that a most volunteers want to get into. And then our investment uh, for the county is really for those people that are going to do it as a full-time career because we need them to be there full-time for our call volume. So I wish there was some volunteer opportunities, but unfortunately, no. Um, for the fire department, you would have to uh, um, similar to what Scott said, you would have to have some qualifications. Uh, one of the things I stressed was the Citizens Fire Academy coming up in um, April. Um, we're taking, uh, uh, we are taking um, uh, applications till then. Um, and we take those people that actually go through the Citizens Fire Academy and uh, we can use, utilize them in volunteer opportunities. Like if we are hosting, we, we host a, um, a regional uh, fire school in September, uh, some of those types of things. We can utilize the volunteers that come through that uh, Citizens Fire Academy to help us with registration, help us with just uh, custodial kind of things, uh, directions, um, those kind of things. So if you're wanting to volunteer for the fire department, you need to participate in our Citizens Fire Academy. For the National Weather Service, we work with universities to uh, have students come and volunteer. We have a couple different programs for that and uh, usually typically need to be a student to do that. Uh, but we also have other programs to help us or help you help us help you, if you will. One is to, I would encourage you to go to a spotter training uh, uh, class that uh, is given here in Cedric County or whatever county or area you're from. There's usually one or two in the communities per year. And, and the other thing is uh, we have what's called a Weather Ready Nation Ambassador Program. And what that is is for your place of work or business you can be an ambassador, and what that means is that we'll give you some weather information to distribute to 
better keep you and your employees safe uh, in, the, in the advent of adverse weather. So thank you. Thank you. Let's have a big round of applause for our panel tonight. There's so much to know. That was a lot of really great information. Um, our next Engage ICT Democracy on Tap will be Tuesday, April 10th. Um, we'll be kicking off our series on the environment. That will be another three-month series. It'll be uh, another really interesting uh, series of discussions then. So please join us for that. And we have a little time for you to come and talk to the panel if you would like to. Uh, remember that we have our info table over there. And thank you all for coming so much. Have a great night. Thanks for joining us for Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. Find more podcasts and videos at engageict.org. This show was hosted at Roxy's Downtown in Wichita, Kansas. The engineer is Torin Anderson, and I'm the host. For KMUW, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo.